What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. This week on the Sunday debate, we're talking sex with two authors whose books offer quite different perspectives on how we approach intimacy and the evolving conversations around it. Our host for today's debate is Shahida Bari, professor at the University of the Arts and presenter for BBC Arts. Here's Shahida with more. Few, I think, would dispute that today, more than ever before, women are sexually liberated. Sex is something we are told that can be pleasurable and free of shame, so long as the parties involved are consenting. As the sexual revolution and second-wave feminism of the 60s washed across the Western world, the prevailing liberal culture declared that sex was something to be celebrated for both men and women. No longer to be repressed or shamed, free from strict morality and unrestricted by the codes of monogamy and religion, we ushered in a new age of sexual freedom. Decades later, feminism's third wave proclaimed that women could both enjoy and exploit the power of sexuality, expressed in phenomena like the TV series Sex and the City, the commercial market for sex toys and the wider conversations about the various forms of sexual pleasure and sexual play. But where has that brought women today and the cause of feminism? How do young women who've grown up in a sexually celebratory and apparently shame-free society navigate sex? Six decades on from the sexual revolution, have women benefited from a culture of sexual freedom? Or is this freedom an illusion? Are there new pressures? And when it comes to sex, are women, in fact, still living in a man's world, conforming to heterosexual desires and tastes? This week on The Sunday Debate, we're asking, has sex positivity harmed feminism? And joining us, we have two learned guests. Christine Ember is a columnist for The Washington Post, where she writes about ideas and society. Her first book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, has just been published in the US with Penguin. And author and therapist Dossie Easton. She co-authored The Ethical Slut with Janet Hardy, which was published for the first time in 1997. It's now in its third edition, selling over 200,000 copies worldwide. She's also been working as a counsellor with survivors of sexual and other abuse since 1978. Christine, Dossie, welcome to the Sunday Debate. 
Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. We're thrilled to have you. And I'm so excited to to hear your thoughts on our conversation. Let's start by inviting you to establish your case in response to this provocation. Has sex positivity harmed feminism? Christine. That's an excellent question. And I would have to say that sex positivity originally meant something specific. Lust Horizons, the 1981 essay that helped coin the term, suggested that an active autonomous sexuality is a necessary aspect of female autonomy in general. And Ellen Willis, its writer, defined being pro-sex in part as the refusal to accept a spurious moral superiority as a substitute for sexual pleasure and curbs on men's sexual freedom as a substitute for real power. That was a specific critique aimed at a particular idea circulating in the feminist movement at the time, a so-called anti-sex view that suggested that heterosexual encounters were always tainted by gender inequality and that political celibacy was the only correct response. But in the same essay, Willis went on to point out that it wasn't only killjoy anti-sex feminists who might ruin sex. She wrote, if self-proclaimed arbiters of feminist morals stifle honest discussion with their dogmatic guilt-mongering judgments, sexual libertarians often evade honest discussion by refusing to make judgments at all. This is the point that tends to get left behind. Today, the term sex positive has ballooned in scope. Within contemporary feminism, the phrase has become shorthand for a general willingness when it comes to sex, being up for anything, often with anyone. It is conversely used to suggest that not being so willing is a failure of feminism on the individual's part. This contemporary definition of sex positivity is cheerfully non-political and appropriately capitalistic, and it sidesteps the pesky question of morality. It's divorced from questions of oppression or larger social goals. Instead, it champions the primacy of the appetite, that our wants are above reproach and worthy of fulfillment, no matter what. But it isn't clear to me that the growth of this particular kind of uncritical sex positivity is as positive a development as it's been made out to be. Sex is not amoral. Yet the bias towards unquestioning acceptance as a marker of so-called good feminism makes it difficult to say so, even when something feels obviously wrong or, in fact, simply is. It should not be so hard to express our own discomfort and discuss the broader implications of various preferences and practices. We should not dodge difficult questions about morality and autonomy and ethics by hiding them under a false banner of so-called sex positivity. After all, the project of sex positivity was meant to increase our sense of independence and empowerment. But being pressured into a single understanding of how one should understand sex or risk being seen as a bad feminist is the literal opposite of personal freedom. Plus, saying that to be sex positive you need to lack limits stigmatized expressing very reasonable requests for boundaries. The earliest sex positive feminists were against moralizing, suspicious of checks on sexuality that posed as morality, but sprang from sexual repression of the hierarchical and undeserved sort. But even they saw the risks of assuming too easily that all desire was beyond critique. Unfortunately, within today's paradigm of uncritical sex positivity, our ability to critique is limited. Thank you, Christine. That's fascinating. And before we, we hear responses to you, let's hear from Dossie. Hi. Well, we, we are in some ways more on the same side that you might imagine. 
I became sexually active in 1962. I've got a couple generations on you, Christine. And oral sex was illegal in California in, until 1976. If we're going to look at sex negativity and sex positivity in its criminalizing form, then that's a different story, I think. I want more of consent than most people seem to. I've been um, teaching a series of classes called Navigating Consent. And my definition of consent is an active collaboration for the pleasure and well-being of all parties concerned, including some who may not be in the room, because in the world of polyamory, there are people who are not in the room. To me, sexuality and particularly open discourse about sexuality was terrifically important in the early years of my feminism because I was um, started identifying as a feminist in 1969. And it answered to me a lot of the problems that I had been having trying to grasp my sexuality and my power as a woman. I had been told that this whole society was organized around, but dear, how are you going to get a husband or other such ridiculous notions? I actually had a therapist back in 1961 who told me I would never be happy until I learned to submerge my identity in a relationship. To me, grasping my power and grasping my sexuality were kind of one and the same thing. I wanted sex to be a healthy force in my life. I wanted it to be an expansive force. I don't believe in putting up with bad behavior in my bed, let's put it that way. Uh, and I don't, I'm, I'm horrified to think that in this day and age, young women are facing the same, I call it jerkiness, the same ridiculous attempts by people who evidently just want to get laid and don't care what the cost is. If I leap up to the present and I see people trying to, I see women trying to claim their sexuality in the face of date rape drugs and Tinder and screen porn and a, a population of young men who grew up playing unbelievably violent uh, video games. Um, I recognize that women have a really horrible problem with this. And when Me Too came out, I was very excited to say, okay, I mean, for all the problems that may have come up, to me, the, the amount of rape culture that goes on in our contemporary culture and has always been there. There is no nice conservative past in the 50s when it wasn't like that. Trust me, that's when I was a young woman fighting battles in the back seats of cars and drive-in movies. It's horrifying to me that that has not changed. And I think we need to keep sex in the discourse if we expect to have sex positivity, meaning a positive force in our lives that is healthy and respectful and joyous. Thank you, Dossie. I think that's a, a really full opening statement from both of you. I wonder whether I could prompt Christine to respond. I, I wonder, Christine, what you think about the, the case that Dossie is making for a history of, of sex positivity, which seems in many ways to have been a political and ethical response to a longer history of sex negativity, gay sex, oral sex, and a newfound candor about sexual conduct where previously it hadn't been permitted, this healthy and respectful form of sex positivity. What, what do you make of that? I think that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I think that if we are talking about sex positivity as the idea, the understanding that sex can actually be good, um, good for us, pleasurable, something that we can share together, that our you know sexual desires and personae are, are part of us, I think recognizing that that is the case has been incredibly positive. I think the fact that we've been able to talk more openly about sex has been incredibly positive. I think the fact that the feminist movements and the sexual revolution 
allowed for the freedom and visibility of so many people who had been previously marginalized, uh, whether for gender or identity or any other reason, has been an unquestionable good. The sexual revolution happened for a reason. And I think in some ways, we can get a little bit confused when we talk about sex positivity, because there is a definition that is simply, we are recognizing that sex can be a good thing and that we should not punish people on the basis of sex. That is one excellent definition. But I do feel that in the modern moment, at least the phrase sex positivity has taken on a particular valence. Not only should we celebrate that sex can be good and celebrate people of different identities and not marginalize people, but also that we shouldn't ask any questions. This comes out of an admirable place, I think, of pluralism as, you know, it's become more obvious to us how people of different identities have been marginalized in the past on on the basis of their sexual preferences or identity. We're, you know, loath to bring that marginalization back. But this also, I think, leaves a lot of opportunity for what Dossie, I think, described as transgressors, um, those who would sort of take advantage of our non-judgmentalism to implement their own selfishness and disguise it under the idea of, well, it's be sex positive, do this. Don't you like sex? Why are you judging me for going after this thing I want, even though the thing that they want is manifestly harmful to others, or in fact, sets us back in this pursuit of equality and dignity for all. I think that we have to still be able to distinguish between what is good, what social ideals we're trying to pursue and build, what we want our relationships with each other to look like, rather than suggesting that if you've consented to anything, or as long as it seems sex positive, or it is about sex, it must be beyond the veil and not able to be critiqued. Dossie, I I wonder what you make of this, because it seems to me that Christine is arguing that, of course, there is a noble history of of sex positivity when we think about the opening up of sexual freedoms for for people who are gay or interested in other forms of sexual freedom. But that history has transformed or transmuted in some way into a more contemporary, uncritical form of sex positivity, which is unmoored from morality. What do you think of that? Well, If you think that guys didn't try to get me into bed by lying when I was a young woman, uh, you have another thing coming. The truth is that something has not changed that needs to change. And that is why I am now proud to be working with transgressors. I have been successful in getting some vulnerability in. In our first class in the transgressors, we asked them to do a dyad where they first share something positive about sex-positive culture that they've in their experience, and then they share something about a boundary that they had crossed, a transgression they had done. Not necessarily the worst thing, and they're sharing this in, with one other person in a dyad. And there was a guy in the room I knew, because I'd been told, uh, had been banned from every party in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco where I live because he would arrive with date rape drugs in his pocket. I was quite shocked when he walked into the room. He was actually an extremely good looking guy. I don't know what his date rape drug fetish was, but he sure wasn't respecting consent with them. This is a criminal activity, really. He did his diet and then he raised his hand when we did the discussion afterwards and he said, looking rather confused and like he'd been hit over the head with a sledgehammer. He said, you know, I actually felt shame. 
My notion is that intimacy is based on shared vulnerability. That's something I learned in my first couples counseling class in 1973. I have looked for opening up vulnerabilities with partners, however intense or casual and wherever in the relationship pluralism that is my lifestyle, they fit to have emotional connection, to be affectionate, to not allow sex to happen without connection. The opportunity to actually work with trying to change a bunch of men who haven't learned any better, I fear, in the modern age is something that's a treasure to me. I'm very happy to be privileged to do that in this day and age because I'm hoping to make a change. I wonder, Jossie, though, and perhaps, Christine, I can ask you this, whether it seems to me that what you're articulating, Christine, is a new set of concerns, not just about longstanding transgressions and uh, unethical practices in, in sexual life. And, and, and I think few would dispute the idea that intimacy is predicated on shared vulnerability. But, Christine, it seems to me one of the things you're saying is that there are new pressures and new challenges that sex positivity has, has placed on feminism. You said earlier that to not be up for it, as sex positive might suggest, is now to be a failure of feminism in some way. Can you tell us a bit more about that? You know, I'll talk a bit about my book, Rethinking Sex, in which I interviewed a number of young men and young women from across the United States and also some other countries. And one thing that kept coming up again and again was a sort of odd dichotomy. First, many of them would say that, as Dossie was pointing out, what they wanted was sex that had intimacy in which they cared for the other person and a person cared for them. Um, That was the sex that was ideal. But so many of them, especially women, continued to consent to and enter into these encounters that were not that, um, that were, you know, kind of random, that were, you know, sex because it was there. And so many of them said that they were doing it because they thought that they should in some way that, you know, this was what being a modern person looked like. This is what being a feminist would look like, having sex and enjoying it, having, you know, whatever kind of experimental sex they were asked to have, even if it wasn't their preference, and being, as Dan Savage used to put it, good giving in game. They might not have actually enjoyed it. They might not have even wanted it, but they felt that they needed to perform And I question that this development is a good thing, that this is what the feminist movement was moving towards, that women and men should feel pressured into having sex that they don't really want or don't really enjoy, sex that looked at in hindsight might seem banal or sad or even traumatic because they have to be sex positive in some way. And I'm a bit wary, I think, in this moment that that sort of vision of what being a good feminist or being a sex positive feminist looks like seems to have taken precedence in the lives of many young people, leaving behind many of the concerns that Dossie spoke of before. Well, yes, I, we are in agreement. Um, but my, I have to admit that I am excited at this point to be able to be addressing what I think is a big piece of the cause that no one has been working on, which is to change the, open up the perspectives of men in all this. There are good men out there. There's no question about that. It's not everybody. There is a movement here to try to get this better. What I would say certainly to women is 
don't let anybody shame you. I mean, don't let anybody guilt trip you into getting into bed with him. That's ridiculous. That is not going to work. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I learned, because I did, well, I've lived in a lot of lifestyles, let's put it that way. And um, I've done a lot of pickup sex and things like that. I know how it works. And I've had a lot of people try to guilt me into bed. And I know how that works. And when I started as a feminist, I started saying no to what I needed to say no to back in 1969. And better people showed up in my bed. What can I tell you? The setting of standards, I think, is really, really important. I think women need to do that, but I think we also need men to be looking at that, too. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance, too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event, and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the Value Revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the Industrial Revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. Christine mentioned her book. Oh, Dossie, can I just get you to talk about your book for a moment? I really want to ask you about The Ethical Slut because that title is so striking and it seems to me also polemical. Can, can we really reclaim that word? The word ethical or the word slut? <laughs> the word slut. <laughs> good question. <laughs> it's named that for a reason, yes. Uh, the Ethical Slut is... The original subtitle was a guidebook to infinite sexual possibilities, and it was about how we go about affirming and what that looks like, what the um, ethics might look like, what the thoughtfulness might look like, how to deal with emotions that might surprise you that come up. It's quite a serious guidebook, despite and the, the title, despite being funny, is actually serious. We really mean it. What does it mean to be respectful and thoughtful and to connect with people in a whole bunch of different kinds of relationships? It, it's very striking that you've used the words possibility a few times in our conversation and opportunity, I think, as well. Christine, in your book, Rethinking Sex, you have a chapter titled, We're Liberated and We're Miserable. So this is quite different from possibility and opportunity. So why do you think we're liberated and, and we're miserable? 
Great question. And, you know, this was actually a question that I was I was going to pose to Dossie, too. I think in some ways, Rethinking Sex is not just a book about sex, but also about what we value, how we define sort of freedom and liberation. And, you know, what I found in, I think, doing interviews for this book was that young people have become very pessimistic about sex, even though we're in a moment where we might expect the opposite. Sex positivity is celebrated in progressive circles and sexual adventurousness is championed and inhibition is looked down on. You know, we've ostensibly breached the ramparts of repression and the wall of silence that prevented us from expressing our sexuality has fallen for the most part. And yet getting rid of all of the old rules and replacing them with solely a norm of consent, you know, the idea that just do whatever you want as long as you've gotten consent from the other person, you know, that was supposed to make us happy. And instead, many people today feel a bit lost, actually, by focusing so much on sort of the infinite possibilities, the idea of fulfilling the self with permission, of course, getting what you need from the other person. It feels like a lot of young people have found that they're actually missing that connection with other people. Boundaries define the scope of what isn't wanted and create a space for everything else that might be. And in sort of a haste to liberate ourselves, to to focus only on gaining more and more possibility, we may have actually left something important behind. An understanding of what connection looks like and means, an understanding that boundaries um, that limiting ourselves in some ways might actually be helpful and good. What, what do you think, Darcy? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, part of feminism for me was discovering my boundaries and refusing anything that that didn't fit for me. When I was young, one of the things I really struggled with, I dropped out of college and moved to New York to be a psychedelic revolutionary back in 61. And um, I discovered that men that I was was sharing sex with were considering me to be somehow degraded by that act. Now, I, I I really think it's dreadful if you think that your own sexuality could degrade another person. That idea that they thought I was somehow degraded because I liked them enough to get into bed with them was was ridiculous. A lot of people are starting out with with apps like Tinder and notions like Zipless Fox and. I don't think that's the place to start out. I don't think that's the right place for women looking to explore their sexuality to begin because those places are full of, well, jerks, people trying to get laid, trying to get laid, trying to get laid, trying to get laid. Well, well this, is a, this is a good question, the culture of online dating. I wonder if that's changed our attitudes towards sex and, and hookup culture, Christine. One might say that online dating is you know, one form of our sexual freedom right now, that there are infinite possibilities available to us online. But has that changed significantly our attitudes to sex and hookup culture? In many ways, I would I would argue that it has. You know, I interviewed a young woman in Rethinking Sex who was telling me about her experiences on Tinder. And she talked about how she had gotten on Tinder and found a guy to hook up with when she was sort of feeling low, recovering from sort of a prior sexual assault. And she said to me, you know, I, I ordered a guy on Tinder. <laughs> and as she I <laughs> ordered that, a guy she, on Tinder. <laughs> I like ordered a, a guy takeaway. on Tinder. <laughs> yes, exactly. As she said that, she she paused and was like, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I was joking, but maybe, I don't know why I said that. And 
she reflected and we talked afterwards on sort of the idea of commoditization and how the idea of sort of infinite possibilities of another person always there, there's always another swipe, has made it easier to see people as as disposable, as commodities, as, you know, one in a million, and thus treat them poorly and not treat them with the human dignity that they deserve. And, you know, in some ways, this is a tension in that it's it's great that women and men, you know, have the ability to meet people they might not have met before, have the ability to meet other partners, have more opportunity. But at the same time, there can be a downside when we sort of over-focus on the opportunity and under-focus on the person. And this is a temptation that is only reinforced by sort of the general capitalist mindset of our society in which we kind of train ourselves to look at almost everything as a commodity, but can in fact be a real danger to the idea of real human relations and relationships. Can I ask you, Dossie, about online pornography? I don't want to suggest that online pornography is a form of sex positivity, but it strikes me that it's something that you must have had to think about, that the effect, liberatory or not, that this has had on, on feminism. Well, most conventional mainstream pornography is written for somebody that I don't know. And um, I look at it. Periodically, people send me things they think are, are, are feminist pornography films, and they send me a copy of their new film, and I'm like... Really? That looks really uncomfortable because <laughs> it's, it's, it is indeed a commodification, a great deal of it. Some of the same people who work in those films actually make indie films that are much better. There was for a while a con- an annual conference at the University of Toronto on uh, feminist porn and people who are very actively m- working toward erotic films and performances that are fitting for women that are uh, respectful and possibly involve vibrators and so on and so forth, but aren't these kind of ridiculous displays that I've seen a little bit more of an understanding of how women actually enjoy sex, perhaps. Darcy, um, well, I have a question for you when it comes to that. I mean, I think, you know, having read The Ethical Slut, and I'm familiar sort of with the feminist pornography makers that you have cited, I wonder, though, do you think that that becomes the norm? Because I guess I I suspect, and I feel like I've seen this in people I interviewed, there is so much of a push for sort of self-expression via, well, you should try polyamory, you should get into feminist porn, that you, you should be more liberated than you are, in a sense. Ostensibly, you know, women should learn to empower themselves and learn how to say no to things that they don't want. But has that shifted the norm in some sense that the norm is now doing sort of more, I think, having a more intense sexual experience. And that is what people feel that they should do, even though that may not be what they want. Well, that's why I threw my hat into the ring to say, okay, I'm going to run a series of classes and hope that we are trying to hopefully train people all around to use the same syllabus or a similar syllabus and start producing classes that teach people. I don't think we have enough good education about sex out there. I think we've assumed that everything is way cool, but it isn't. There are lousy books out there, um, tricks for pickup artists, how to lie your way into somebody's bed, dreadful stuff, just dreadful. And that's why I felt I had to to start working on saying, how can I develop some classes about consent that are about looking at the vulnerabilities that are involved and how do we want to deal with them that are about learning how to make friends with your no, make friends with your anger. This is part of my empowering women part 
of all of this, to refuse to put up with anything that doesn't meet your standards, and to do some adequate sex education out there because it's pretty inadequate, frankly. That's why navigating consent is very important to me. It is my legacy project. I'm 78 years old. I'm, I'm looking at retiring and things like that one of these centuries. And, um, and uh, this is the note I want to leave on to say, how do we build a world with healthy consent in it? It's interesting to hear you talk about sexual education, Dossi, because I was just about to ask Christine about the younger generation, Gen Z or Gen Z, as we would say in England, are having less sex than the generations that preceded them. They're sometimes being called puritines and sex regressive, right? Not sex positive, but sex regressive. Why do you think that is, Christine? Yeah, I mean, there are <laughs> there are any number of reasons why this might be happening. And um a good deal of speculation because no one really knows for sure. But, you know, I think some of this, some of the speculation from researchers like Debbie Herbenick and elsewhere is that this kind of goes back to the we're liberated, but we're miserable phenomenon. In some ways, it seems as sort of the sexual horizon has expanded. Young people are seeing so much more of this sex that they simply don't want. These sexual relationships that are ostensibly sex positive, but are painful or unappealing. You know, they start having sex and have experiences that are incredibly unpleasant. You know, I talked to one young woman who meets a guy who seems really nice. And then in their first encounter, he begins to choke her and she finds that terrifying and doesn't want to have sex anymore. I think that the playing field seems to have become a lot harder again with this commoditization brought on by sort of dating apps and how hard it seemed to meet somebody who actually wants intimacy and vulnerability that many people have in some ways given up, that the idea of sex almost no longer seems excitingly transgressive. Everything has been transgressed and now it feels a bit banal. This is, to be clear, not a good thing. You know, it's great that there is less sort of unplanned teen pregnancy, but what we should really be worried about is young people not being able to find relationships of care and intimacy that they really want that help them to flourish as humans. There is an epidemic of loneliness that we now talk about constantly, and the inability to find sort of real and fulfilling relationships is certainly part of that. And to the extent that sort of broadening the boundaries has made everything feel a little bit less stable or a lot less stable... It is worth asking, how do we rebuild a sexual culture where people know what to do, what's acceptable and what's not, where they won't be sort of frightened by an outre sexual act and pushed to do it so that they can be seen as sex positive, or in fact, pushed to try polyamory, say, even if they don't want to, because it's their job to try new things and be experimental if they're going to be good modern people. I think we need to begin to ask more questions about what is actually good for us and what sort of sexual culture we want to build and not just say anything goes, whatever you want, as long as it's consented to. We're coming towards the close of our conversation, but I want to make sure we get to some of the nuts and bolts. So I have two nuts and bolts questions, as it were. One is about contraception. Dossie, perhaps I can ask you this. Contraception was one of the leading catalysts for the sexual revolution, but it remains for the large part, the responsibility of women. Why is that still the case? And can this ever change? 
I teach that a gentleman is a man who has masturbated with a condom on for a month till he knows how to use it and make it work. Um, this is insane. I agree with you entirely. It should not be entirely women's responsibility. I have had all kinds of suffering from medical birth control and the safer sex issues are very, very important, uh, especially now that everybody's jetting around the world. I had a client who nearly died of chlamydia. It was so bad the doctors prepared her children for her death. I really, I really wish that we were teaching men to participate more in what makes things safer, in what makes things more, not only more intimate, but also in safer birth control, safer sex, all of that. I want men to participate in that. I've sort of given up on that kind of uh, a male-female type primary relationship myself. My co-author has been married with the same person for 20 years. So, you know, we're, we're in both places. But I just want better, better participation from half the population. Thank you very much. And I certainly don't want people being told that they ought to get to bed with, you ought to get into bed with me or otherwise you're not cool anymore. That is ludicrous. I have known for a long time, long before the internet, that the idea that we go to a club with music so loud that we cannot have a conversation where everybody drinks alcohol and we dance and we're supposed to somehow find a partner there that we are then going to you know, raise a family with or something like that. It's like, uh-uh, no. I'm, I focus with my clients a lot on building community. I found myself building community in the early years of my own polyamory, and there were wonderful extended families that I've participated in and still are. At my age, a lot of us are dying, and but our children, many, many of them have taken up the banners and are still doing it. My daughter was helping organize a conference for a while on sexualities, things like that. We have, I think communities, building communities and extended families and that sort of thing is the answer to a lot of the concerns that we have. In a community, there is an accountability for behavior. It's not anonymous like Tinder. You can't pretend you're somebody else. You're just there. People see you, and whether that's you know the Society for Creative Anachronism or a science fiction convention or any of this, a lot of possible communities or your church social or 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 there's a lot of communities. That's what I recommend to my clients: go find the people who are like you, who are you know going to want the same things that you want. Go find community. My last question is: I have to ask this: is about the orgasm. Is the orgasm an indicator that men and women? are not equal in sex and may never be equal in sex. Perhaps, Christine, I can ask you whether the pursuit of the orgasm is its own kind of tyranny. Well, I certainly wouldn't call it a tyranny um, <laughs> in that, you know, I think that people like to orgasm and find it very pleasurable. And in some cases, that is their their goal from sex. I think one thing that's still notable in our our moment is the idea of the orgasm gap. And I say the idea, but of course, it's, it's very real that men tend to orgasm more in sexual encounters. And this is especially notable in sort of more casual sexual encounters that men tend to find it easier to orgasm even with a partner that they don't know or don't have any experience with. Whereas for women, it simply doesn't work as well. Women tend to orgasm more in relationships where they know their partner, where they feel safe, where their partner has in some ways learned with them what they like. And it does seem to me that the pursuit of sort of casual sex tends to benefit men more than women. Men tend to get more pleasure out of these encounters than women do. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking on average here. Of course, there are women who enjoy these encounters too. But the fact that we seem to have made the default still a default in which men are the ones who are receiving the most pleasure and men are the one 
to whom we are training our desires to fulfill seems to speak to an inequality that has not been solved yet, even by the most sort of sex positive vision of feminism that we've talked about so far. I'll give you the last word, Dossie, on that. Can we close the orgasm gap for feminism? We could. And I agree with you that it's not easy. It's not easy because our physiologies are different, men and women. I think that, again, sex education would be a really great answer to that. Michael Moore's latest film, that I know is latest anyway, he showed a a sex ed class in Finland. And the teacher had turned from physiology to talking to her students who were probably around seventh grade age, you know, um, saying, okay, now let's talk about how we make sure that our partner has a good time. If we could have that kind of sex education, I think that we could solve these problems really quickly. Well, it's been an education talking to you both. Thank you, Christine and Dossie. That was Christine Ember and Dossie Easton. Christine's book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, is now available from Penguin US, and you can read her work in the Washington Post. Dossie's book, The Ethical Slut, is published by 10 Speed Press and is widely available. You've been listening to The Sunday Debate from Intelligence Squared. I'm Shahid Abari. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access too. Currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extra. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.